And we welcome you to the Thursday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. That, as I'm sure you know, was The Typewriter by American composer Leroy Anderson. And uh, this wonderful, entertaining, uh, delightful, energetic piece is one of just a number of delights that are going to be uh, offered up uh, at the Concert at Carthage College this coming Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock on the Hedberg Library patio when the combined bands of Carthage College will present a patio pops concert, all works inspired by mechanical devices of one kind or another. It's yet another uh, innovative idea uh, from Dr. James Ripley, who is uh, the coordinator of of uh, instrumental activities at Carthage, professor of music and uh, director of all the bands at Carthage. And uh, he'll be on the podium uh, conducting this concert. So we're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be turning our attention to uh, the weighty matter of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Ripley sits on Carthage's COVID coordination committee. And so he and his colleagues on that committee have had to wrestle through throughout the duration of this pandemic with uh, Carthage's response to it, setting policies and protocols to try to keep everybody safe, uh, students, staff, faculty. And uh, so we'll be uh, getting something of an update from him as well. And uh, at the end of the hour, we'll uh, offer up a little more of the music, which is going to be part of Sunday afternoon's concert. Dr. James Ripley, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg. It's it's great to be back and uh, saying hello to everybody today. This is wonderful to be uh, visiting with you about this concert. And sitting here in the studio, as a matter of fact, for uh, well over a year, there weren't any outside guests allowed actually into the building, uh, let alone into our studio. So it feels feels great to be sitting across the table again uh, in an interview like this. I was really surprised when I uh, read the publicity about Sunday afternoon's concert that 
this is actually kind of a fun tradition that goes back quite a long way uh, for the bands at Carthage to get the year off uh, on, on a real sort of fun note. Um, and sometimes really, really close to the start of the school year. So tell us uh, what you think is important for us to know about kind of the history of this first band concert of the year. Well, it is, as you say, a a great way to get started with everybody together as the band program has developed into uh, a couple of different groups, plus obviously other auxiliary Ensembles like the Jazz Ensemble mm-hmm. and Pat Penn and things like that. This really gives a chance for the students to all play together to start the year off. And um, being outside when it's so nice by the lake and mm-hmm. the, the weather, especially now, <laughs> prompts us to uh, get outside as much as we can. And so the opportunity was there um, quite a while ago, actually, uh, to have this start. And then it was actually a number of student conductors that were involved in that process uh, in the early stages. We had a, a wonderful set of students that many of them are teaching in the area now and doing great work, but they were conductors on this concert as we went through. Movie music, I think, was the first one. And then it's just built from that to a, a chance to explore some different kinds of fun music to start the year and, uh, again, have the students all playing together. Is it a mad dash to get this first concert ready? I mean, in in the space of just what is it, two weeks, three weeks, something like that. It is. It is a. It is a mad dash. That's that's the perfect terminology. It's it's actually a lot of fun. We don't play music that's as difficult as what we might normally play for the the college groups during the course of the year. Um, but it's all wonderful music, very well crafted and arranged. And so it's just choosing the right pieces so that within a couple of weeks we can um, make a, a great presentation. And especially when we look at these kinds of pieces that are um, uh, high school, maybe even some for middle school, it's a great way for our music education students to also familiarize themselves with other pieces that we wouldn't normally be playing in college, but mm. they get a chance to see that and work with that in um, in their own background. I know you are a, a lover of history, and I remember really fondly uh, one of these uh, patio pops concerts in, in September a few years ago in which you were looking back to a concert that occurred on the campus of old Carthage College down in Carthage, Illinois, a concert that was... In, in some manner or form, out in the open air, which, of course, is not a revolutionary idea, but you had information about a very specific concert that took place down there, right? Yes, that was a, um, a recreation of the, the first concert that was ever given at the campus. We had mm. a list of the pieces that were played. We had some investigation as to actually finding that music. It was not an easy challenge for some mm-hmm. of those things. But uh, that concert was actually performed from the the rooftop of a dormitory. Wow. And so outdoors really was outdoors <laughs> for for that event. And the uh, uh, the thought crossed my mind that we should maybe try to get on top of one of the legacy dorms, but <laughs> at that time I don't think B 
Bill Hoare, our operations chief, would have allowed that. Mm. So instead, we were able to do that again between um, the, uh, the the library. But that was one of those times, too, where we've also had some um, inclement weather, mm. uh, whether the, the wind really comes up off of the lake or whether it's raining. And so we actually ended up performing that one inside, even mm. though the original was outside. Um, well, yes, Mother Nature is not always a music lover, that's for sure. <laughs> that's, that's <okay. laughs> but I think she might be this uh, this weekend. It looks at this point at least like it's uh, maybe a, a, a very, very nice weekend. So you've come up with a really intriguing idea for this coming concert, as I already touched on, uh, a concert in which at least most of what will be played are are musical works inspired in one way or another by mechanical devices. So first of all, do you recall what prompted this uh, interesting idea? This is more like a sequel or a spin-off than mm. a, an original idea this time because a few years back we had done a concert in May that was similarly based, Mechanical Musical Mayhem, and it was... It was uh, such a hit that there were just a lot more pieces that could have gone on that program, but we just didn't have time to do that. And mm -hmm. as we looked at ways to get started this year, building on those ideas seemed like the way to go. There's, uh, you know, instruments are a little bit of a contraption on their own anyway. You know? Right. They really are just yeah. machines. They're all mechanical <laughs> devices to one extent or another. Right. Yeah. And so this is now just we don't use the kitchen sink this time. We don't use the tailgate of a Ford pickup this time. <laughs> we don't have those things, but we've got lots of things that honk and sizzle <laughs> and bang and even something that goes thunk. Mm. Well, and it, it brings to mind, of course, the fact that this is a tradition that goes back in history quite a long time. I mean, all the way back at least to the Toy Symphony, which is, I think, attributed to, isn't it, to Mozart's father, I think, it Leopold? Is. Yeah. Um, and other pieces from that era, which would evoke, uh, like, the mechanical clock or whatever. And uh, so this is not just a newfangled uh, innovation, but something that's been kind of a fun aspect of music for generations, for centuries. Yes, indeed. And the um, the piece that we're doing by... Uh, Canadian composer Michael Colgrass, which is called The Beethoven Machine, this really does tie exactly into that. He takes a Beethoven sonatina and he creates three different sub-orchestras within the full group. So there's the machine that plays, and it's a lot of percussion, but also honks and squeaks and things like that in the band that create this kind of sound of the machine, which would have been something like the Toy Symphony. But then it, it, it weaves it into this Beethoven sonatina, and it's played by what the composer calls the children's orchestra, which is the woodwinds. And so they play in a very um, classical kind of style. And then there's the adult orchestra, which is the brass, and they're, of course, very serious and somber about this same <laughs> sonatina, and the piece interchanges itself 
with the machine coming in to almost say, no, it's okay, you two can play together. It's fine that adults and children can get along. And uh, it wraps up with everybody just kind of going their own way, you know, just kind of reminiscing on the music or the tunes that they've played already. So it's, it's a very creative work by a, a wonderful composer. That sounds fantastic. Tell us about some of the other pieces that are on Sunday afternoon's program. Um, well, a similar concept is uh, a piece by Timothy Broge, uh, who's a New Jersey harpsichordist and church musician, actually. But he wrote a lot of pieces in the 70s, uh, especially for uh, schools in southeast Wisconsin. Kenosha has some pieces that was written for, for them by Tim, as well as Waukesha, Madison. And so this rhythm machine was written for an Oconomowoc band, hmm. and it very much is the sound of like tick-tocking in the background with some things, and then the, the music plays out over this rhythmic machine. Um, three different sections, um, but similar but not quite as thought out as, as the, uh, the Beethoven machine. Um, we're doing a really interesting piece by David Biedenbender. He's a composition teacher at Michigan State University hmm. and uh, originally from Waukesha. And David wrote a piece called Melodious Thunk. Now, Melodious Thunk is actually the nickname given to Thelonious Monk was, by his wife. I was going to say that sounds like <laughs> sounds like that name <laughs> just put through a little meat grinder there. And you couldn't have said it any better because that's what happens in the piece. Huh. It takes kind of the quirky nature of Thelonious Monk's bebop style on piano and puts it into the winds in a way that sounds like melodious thunks. <laughs> That's really the way that the piece works. And then also it's a homage to bebop in general. It has these quotes of a piece by Dizzy Gillespie called Salt Peanuts. Hmm. So as it goes along, Salt Peanuts comes into the mix as well as these really ingenious and, and listenable tunes. Um, it's, it's like Thelonious Monk, but crunched up. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really clever piece and it ends with the same kind of sounds that are in syncopated clock, but now syncopated clock has just gone bad. It's all broken into different things. So he writes at the end it's like the sound of, you know, broken clocks and alarm clocks. So wow. That's that's part of the uh the program we're also doing a uh a piece that a lot of people will recognize, although they may not know the, the title of that, which is called Powerhouse. Um, Raymond Scott was a uh, jazz uh, and, and band leader in the 30s, and he his quintet wrote this and recorded this piece originally, and the Warner Brothers folks picked up on it to use in the Warner Brothers cartoons. So you'll recognize the sounds of the... Um, uh, the Bugs Bunny and uh, all of those crazy machines that had the background, all of that, as well as some of the other kind of flying around Roadrunner things. You'll you'll recognize the, yeah. the piece. Um, and uh, those kind of fall along the lines of the um, uh, the 
machine music. We're doing a couple of other pieces as well that um, have a special context for us. Um, the one is uh, called Hill and Dale Waltzes. It's a, it's a pun, Hill and Dale mm. Waltzes, and it's for solo clarinet um, by Victor Babin. Uh, this was a mm. composer uh, violinist, um, and he had written this for himself and his wife as a piano-violin duet. And then it was arranged for band. But it's being played for us by a wonderful senior, uh, Emma Hardwick. Emma is from St. Charles and went to St. Charles East High School. And uh, it's just a, a lovely piece. And I had heard this, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago when it first came out and, and just wanted to have it uh, for our students at some point. But last spring... Emma came into what we have as our final for lessons, the juries, and played this piece, and it was done so well. And she's been such a great contributor to the band program over the years. Um, not as a, a, a music major, um, mm. but she's played just so well and been so important that I asked her to play this for us on the concert. So mm. there's uh, a set of uh, waltzes based upon a theme that this composer had had written. Interesting. And then our uh, opening piece is actually a fanfare by Alvin Singleton. Um, Alvin Singleton is in now our continued initiative for Black Composers Matter. We've mm -hmm. committed to performances for the next four years now. We've got one year uh, last year that we began. And so um, Alvin's music has been recently recognized with a Graymeyer Award, but this was a piece that he had written a number of years ago. It sounds very much like Copeland. Um, it's not quite fanfare for the common man because it doesn't have all of the percussion in it as well, but you'll recognize some of the same kind of sounds with mm -hmm. that. So it's uh, about a 40-minute program. It's not terribly long, but as we get started, it's about as much as we can muster up. Right. Well, and uh, less is more when it comes to putting on something like this. I mean, so it, it allows you to present what you're going to present in really polished form and uh, ready to uh, entertain the masses who come t to hear it. So explain for somebody who's never been to one of these delightful Patio Pops concerts, Maybe explain that title and exactly where this performance on Sunday afternoon takes place. Great. Yes, the the patio that we're referring to is the area between our Hedberg Library and the Siebert Chapel. And so as uh, people would arrive to the, the concert, uh, they would likely uh, want to park in the large parking area um, down by the athletic fields, but certainly there may be spots in the north lot. Uh, there may be spots in the parking lot right next to the the arts center and the, the chapel as well. Um, uh, there won't be parking allowed on Campus Drive, obviously, for, for this, for lots of reasons. But parking will certainly be available. And then as people come up, rather than going into the chapel, they'll just go just a little bit north uh, to the patio area. And we'll have um, some seating available, but people really should plan on either standing uh, or bringing a, a lawn chair if they like. There's certainly going to be space available for, for everybody that wants to come to the concert. And um, 
again, for the duration, I, I think it'll be fine for, for a lot of our people to be able to stand if, if they so wish. And um, we do have uh, a ticketing process that will be in place largely in case we'd have to move inside. Hmm. But if uh, people are able to go to the Carthage Fine Arts page and the ticketing um, um, links to get access to tickets, that's really the best way to do things. But people will be able to come the day of the concert and also um, just come in and they'll, there will be someone there to access a, uh, a ticket for you as you come in. And we're talking about free tickets, of course. Absolutely, yes. Right. So this is a free concert, very much open to the public, and 40 minutes long, so a nice bite-sized uh, amount of music to enjoy. And uh, the last time I was uh, at one of the patio concerts, uh, I very happily stood, and I'm not a particularly a fan of standing, but it, the, the time just flew by because it was such an entertaining concert and it was it was just it was just great. So much fun. And uh, what's it like for your students to play outside? Uh, and do you rehearse actually out on the Hedberg Library patio once or twice to get them used to it? I mean what what is the sensation for them as players? This is actually one of the real nice things about our concert is that in playing where we do outside, we're under a natural, well, I guess it's not a natural overhang, but we have part of the chapel that actually extends over the top of where we sit. And so it actually sounds very good to hmm. the players at, in that um in that position. So almost a natural shell effect. It is, yeah. right. The The library forms the one side, the chapel's to the other side, and then as that balcony area extends over the top, we have a shell. Huh. So it's al almost a little like playing in a wonderful band shell that has uh, acoustics that uh, sort of send the sound forward and also allows your players to hear one another. It does. It, it really is... A nice place to play. We've thought about going to Penoyer at, at times to be able to do the concert there, but it hasn't either worked from the standpoint of other events or sometimes it's just simply the travel. It's not a long way, but when you're bringing in percussion instruments mm. and things like that, there's just some different things. And being able to rehearse there as well isn't mm. as easy. Uh, so this works well for us, and I like the fact that, again, we're outside and the students are enjoying our location to be able to be, you know, that close to the lake. And, and I, I like it when they look at me when I conduct, <laughs> but I know that they like looking at the lake as well. There you go. So this Patio Pops concert that we're talking about with the combined bands of, the, uh, of Carthage College is this Sunday afternoon uh, at 2 o'clock in the so-called Hedberg Library Patio. And actually, Mr. Hedberg... Uh, passed away not long ago. So uh, in a sense, this is a, a nice homage to that beautiful library uh, facility that he helped to make possible. And uh, all of these uh, pieces, uh, or just about all of them, inspired by various mechanical devices in our lives and all kinds of uh, entertaining pieces that uh, uh, everyone is going to, I know, thoroughly enjoy. And again, the concert is Sunday afternoon, 2 o'clock. It is free. Uh, but you are requested to reserve a ticket ahead of time, and you can do that by going to uh, 
uh, Carthage's website, carthage.edu. There's probably a couple of different avenues to find the link to tickets. Right. I think it's something like fine arts slash tickets will we'll get you there. And you can just go into the search bar there and so on. You can also go onto the bridge where there is a, a, a list of events, uh, not just musical events, but all kinds of events. And uh, I know within there you can find that link that will allow you to reserve free tickets for Sunday afternoon's concert. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. James Ripley, uh, who is from the music faculty at Carthage College. In addition to his work in the music faculty, he has also sat on the COVID coordination committee at Carthage, and we're going to talk in a moment uh, about kind of the ongoing challenge of contending with the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we get into that, uh, Dr. Ripley, I thought maybe we could just look backwards for a moment at this past school year sure, and what it was like very specifically for you and the bands in terms of of functioning, of carrying on uh, in the midst of COVID and uh, all of the restrictions that uh, have affected people who sing and also people who play wind instruments. Um, just give our listeners at least a, a kind of a sketch summary of of uh, some of the challenges that you and your students uh, were contending with. Well, certainly the two biggest challenges were that we had a prescribed amount of time that we could actually sit together to to play, to rehearse. Uh, uh, it was recommended that um, sessions be no longer than 30 minutes long. Um, and that was proposed by a study that was done at the University of Colorado in Boulder, as well as a follow-up at the University of Maryland. The second big challenge was just needing to be distanced further than what we would normally play. And so while now this year, our restriction is is really only three feet. Same study has recommended that three feet is is acceptable this year. Last year we were operating, you know, safely at six, and I actually set the band up at eight foot distance because mm. I just wanted to make sure that we were really opened up. So every member of the band was eight feet distant from any other member of the band. Correct. Which is really different from the way. A band typically sits. Right. So that was a major challenge. And um, as students would respond to me, um, they would say that what was their challenge was as soon as they would play loud enough so that they felt like they were playing with their normal projection, that then they couldn't hear the people around them, that they mm -hmm. were far enough away that for, to project in a normal fashion took them away from being able to hear easily the people around them. And especially if you can imagine, you know, the distance between, you know, one end to the group to the other, that was that was significant. Mm. The good news about all of that was that we were still able to play. There were a lot of places around the country where things really had to change so drastically that people weren't able to play together. Mm. And so that challenge we did not have to undergo. But those were the two biggest things. And we did play also with uh, what we call playing masks. The students had a, uh, a regular face mask, which had some kind of either uh, hole or slit in it so that they could um, uh, put their mouthpiece through that opening. 
Um, most of those also had an, another kind of covering, a flap over the top of it to reduce the aerosol. So there was a special mask that they had to wear, which is not really fun to <laughs> to put mm-hmm. on, um, but uh, but necessary. And then the other thing was that we had bell covers for the instruments as well because the research showed that a certain amount of the aerosols that were extended through the instrument would get into the air and then that would also circulate um, uh, in in kind of a plume fashion over the course of time. So by putting on a restrictive bell cover, you could reduce that, and um, that also was a challenge because it does change the sound of the instrument. And some of the instruments like clarinet, they couldn't even play the lowest notes on the instrument. So we had really? to find yeah we had to find some alternative ways to to help them with that. Wow, wow. Well, uh, as you said, uh, although band music, band performance, all but ground to a halt in certain places, it by no means ground to a halt at Carthage. You carried on uh, with rehearsals, with performances, uh, as as best you could, and uh, and in very impressive fashion. So you've already touched on the fact that uh, some of the pro calls have been loosened for this coming year, and uh, so. Uh, the distance uh, has been, in a sense, lessened that they can sit closer together, which I'm sure is making a very, very big difference. Are there other ways in which the protocols have been loosened a bit, or is that the main one? Right. I would um, respectfully use the word revised instead ah. of loosened. But, okay, but right. Yes. Fair but, enough. Yeah, re- revised in this case because the... Um, uh, the time for rehearsal has been uh, related as very safely extended to 50 minutes. Hmm. And the the rest of the terminology around that, the rest of the um, statement said that they were confident that 60 minutes would be very safe. But they were trying to be even more uh, safe in saying 50 minutes is extremely um, uh, safe amount of time to rehearse without needing to to stop. So those are those are major changes for us. Right. And, because otherwise, just so people understand, you would be rehearsing for maybe for, half an hour at the most, and yeah. then and then all of your musicians would have to exit that room in which you were rehearsing to allow the air to circulate and either resume in another room or wait 10 or 15 minutes before entering the room and then carrying on with the remainder of the of the rehearsal which is kind of a maddening uh frustrating reality but uh something that uh that of course all of us happily did for the sake of the safety of ourselves and our students right exactly and the college is wonderful about providing all sorts of support for for the faculty and the students, but the one thing that they're not really able to do is to you know create a twenty five hour day or a twenty six <laughs> hour day. So we only had a certain amount of time that we could work within that framework. Right. As for the college itself, uh, I know extensive discussion went on uh, over the summer months. You didn't have the summer off at all no. uh, in terms of trying to shape what the college's uh, policies and protocols would be for this current school year. Um, just try to give us a sense of the nature of those conversations and, and discussions and, and maybe what some of the stickiest points were to, to try to resolve. Sure. Um, uh, 
the biggest thing that we had to discuss and and decide on was simply the fact of uh, vaccinations and whether they should be required or recommended for our faculty, students, and staff. Um, Considered a lot of different data, uh, looked at the way that things were going around um, the country as far as any um, outbreaks, and then also looking at different countries to see if there were patterns that were starting to develop. And largely, after a lot of deliberation, we knew that the highest percentage of people on campus that might be vaccinated would would be um, only if we went with uh, mandating those those vaccinations and and with all of the data that we had, we knew that that was going to be the thing that would put our community in the safest hands mm-hmm. um, with that, there were the um, um, exemptions that were uh, granted as as people may um, choose or I guess should say apply for an exemption which mm. which were carefully considered uh, before approving and so we've moved forward now um, very successfully I think uh, so far and are even offering um, free vaccine clinics on campus three times this fall to pick up others that may want to uh, to take advantage of that um, the other thing that we really were looking at was trying to bring the students back to as many of the familiar activities and familiar classroom settings as what um, they knew and, and loved at being at Carthage and having that interaction with the, um, the faculty. And so a lot of the decisions were made towards that end as well. So um, things like um, having um, a more complete uh, number of students in a classroom, you know, mm. knowing to three three feet for our um, distancing in the classrooms as well. Being able to consider ways that in labs where students were closer together, um, finding ways to do that. And, and we were looking at that with masks anyway, but now with our current policy, everyone's masked indoors anyway. So that was a simpler kind of decision to make as it went. Um, but trying to find ways to really keep our um, regular activities as as uh, as bountiful and as fruitful as possible was uh, a major consideration, as well as the safety of everyone. And then trying to you know find out how to really make the vaccines work um, for as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. I know that. Uh in the course of some really lively uh, online faculty discussions about around some of these questions. I mean, some of the liveliest conversations I can remember in all my years at Carthage. Yep. Uh, I thought one of the most intriguing points was that of, you know, kind of dueling philosophies in terms of if we create really, really strict protocols, uh, is that going to discourage certain people from, from, from either returning or coming to Carthage in the first place because it's just nothing they want to deal with versus creating really strict protocols, which would actually attract some students because uh, Carthage will be an exceptionally safe place. And it just right there, it kind of crystallized 
two things that you're sort of trying to weigh. And, of course, in the middle of it, you're just trying to also make sense of the science of it, of right. this reality in which we find ourselves and uh, how strict do we make the protocols and uh, how flexible do we make them, how nimble do we need to be as situations change. I mean, I don't envy you and your colleagues at all in having to kind of contend with all that. Yeah, the the best way I guess I could relate this to the listeners is that while we definitely considered some of the impacts as far as uh, student attendance in in one way or another, um, our our focus was really um, on on going forward with the safety of the students at at this point and and not letting any of the financials be uh, a driving force that mm. that somehow we might lose students or this way we might gain students that may have happened in other committee meetings but it did not happen in our committee mm. we really just simply looked at what is the safest way that we can bring our students faculty and staff back in the fall to make it as um robust an experience as possible yeah. so that was that was the philosophy there i'd be you know, short-sighted if I didn't say there were some conversations at some point with other people about that. But that was not part of our committee discussions. Great. That's yeah. probably the, the way it should be. How would you briefly summarize how Carthage did this past year in terms of contending with, with COVID, in terms of, of, of how safe the students ended up being or just how they did? I thought it was a remarkably successful year. And and I'll break that down into just uh, two little things. The one would be in that same sense of looking at the fall. If if we looked at somehow that the only way that we were being successful is if there were zero cases, if there were no instances of people needing to be quarantined, if it was a zero-sum game, that's a really high bar, mm-hmm. you know? And so we're not looking at that in the fall. And in the same fashion, we were very hopeful in the spring that that might be the case, but that was a little naive. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that idea that almost like Carthage was an island and it was like a bubble and if no cases came in, then we would be fine. Hmm. And uh, that utopian society just does not exist. And so from the standpoint of what we did experience um, with, with no shutdowns, remarkable cooperation and collaboration with the faculty and the staff to set up all of the different kinds of ways of learning and hybrid and being able to adapt the classes and then being able to um, see where there were instances where a student couldn't be in class because of being in quarantine and that they were being taken care of in the dorm in a special area. And then the faculty were able to get their work to them so that they could continue to learn even though they were in quarantine. There was a lot of moving parts. And I really, really was very impressed with how the whole college came together to support that situation. I I don't know how it could have gone much better. Hmm. So I was I was really happy with the, the way that we handled things. Is there still a dashboard where people can consult kind of the statistics in terms of new cases and so on? Yes. It's been adapted a little bit this year where 
you can see the percentage of our full community that's been vaccinated, and that hits in at 88% right now. Hmm. Um, That is 88% of the people that have reported, so it's not a full number, but it is the number that reflects the people that have reported uh, their vaccination status. Um, Also, that's... uh, changing from week to week and getting higher from week to week. There's another thing that we're doing, which is weekly testing for people that are unvaccinated. And there's a report on the dashboard that says how many of those cases have turned to be positive. Hmm. So we know from the unvaccinated um, uh, members of our community um, that are tested what that um, is reflecting. And then also there's another new data point on there, which is a, how do I best say this one? There are a a number of tests that are being submitted um, as uh, a general population testing as well. And that data is also being recorded so people can see if there are cases that way. And then there's the old things that show what how many cases are on campus right now, et cetera. Very good. So it's good that that information is still available for people, and that's found on the Carthage website as well? Right. Right yeah. at the homepage, you can see COVID-19 dashboard. Very good. Well, I applaud you and your colleagues on that committee for all the hard work that you have done uh, on this really important issue. And we want to remind people on a happier note about the Patio Pops concert coming up this Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock on the Hedberg Library Patio. It promises to be a delightful concert, and uh, you should go to uh, the, the Carthage website to secure your free ticket for this outdoor concert featuring the combined bands of Carthage under the direction of Dr. James Ripley. Dr. James Ripley, thank you for being here on The Morning Show. It is my pleasure, as always, Greg. Thank you. And to finish out today's morning show... We're going to listen to one of the pieces of music that Dr. Ripley mentioned in the course of this conversation. It's called Powerhouse by Raymond Scott. And indeed, if you listen past the introduction, you will hear music that will be very, very familiar if you, like me, have enjoyed Warner Brothers cartoons over the years. Here it is, Raymond Scott's Powerhouse. Powerhouse. 